We're continuing in our series from the Gospel of John. I've titled the series, The Message Became Flesh. Uh, I do think that's the theme of the whole gospel is the fact that God has communicated to us in the ultimate and most significant way in the incarnation when God Almighty took on flesh. He came to communicate to us uh, the message of God in a way never seen before. And one of the central issues that all religions seem to address in one way or another is what's God up to? Who is he? Uh, and and what, is, what is he doing? What does he want of us? What should we make of him? Um, is God at work? Or did he just wind us up and step back? Is he involved? And if so, how? And what does he want to do? What's he trying to accomplish? And what part do we play in all of that? Those are the big questions that religions try to find answers to. Jesus has come to provide us with answers to those questions. In today's passage, we're going to see what Jesus had to tell us about what God, the God he describes as Father, just what he is up to. What is the Father's work, and what is it he wants to be doing in us? So I've titled today's message, The Father's Work. We're in John chapter 5, verses 9, well, the second half of verse 9 through verse 18. So let's read together, or I'm sorry, I'll read, y'all can listen, uh, verses 9 and 10. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews were telling the one who had been healed, it is Sabbath, you are not allowed to take up your cot. We're picking this up after uh, the sermon we preached uh, Sunday before last, uh, in which Jesus healed a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. For 38 years, he had been unable to move about on his own. And we find uh, that story concluding with, with that healing. And you might think the story's over, but John, when he tells us these miraculous things, and he really handpicks just a few, a small bit of the miraculous things Jesus did, because he's using these specific ones to tell us very big and important things about what Jesus was coming to communicate to us. That's why John's favorite word to describe miracles is signs. They point to something beyond themselves. They are signifiers of something other than just the act itself of the miracle. So he, he has told us this healing of the paralytic, and there are some notable details. First of all, the man had no faith. Jesus says to him, do you want to be well? And he says, sir, there's no way. I'm here by this pool because supposedly there's something miraculous. If you get into it quickly enough, once the water is agitated, you might be healed. But there's, I can't even get to the water. There's nobody to help me. We find out about the man that not only has he been in this condition for 38 years, but that at this point in his life, he's all alone. He doesn't have a single person to help him even make his way to this pool uh, to try to see if there might be some miraculous healing occur in his body. He shows no faith. He doesn't even ask Jesus for help. And yet Jesus, as an act of divine kindness, heals him. He says, get up, grab your cot, walk. 
And we are amazed. We, we read that story. <clears throat> and we can't help but be marveling at the kindness and the gracious goodness of God. And this does track with the God we've read of through the whole Bible. Of the God who is, whose mercies are new every morning. The God who is great in faithfulness. Who showers his mercies upon a thousand generations. We hear the story, we, uh, we think, what a wonderful thing God has done. And here's the genius of how John tells this story. He waits until this moment to tell us, by the way, that day was a Sabbath. Now, we might read that and say, so who cares? Well, great, now we know what day of the week it happened on, but beyond that, we have little interest in it. But here's what happens. There are a couple of things that just happened that any Jew who grew up in synagogue and has been drilled in the rabbinic traditions, this is how you keep Sabbath, they knew things like unless somebody's life is in danger, you do not perform medical procedures or do anything uh, on Sabbath because that can wait. You're supposed to rest on Sabbath. Unless somebody's about to die, you don't do anything to fix their physical problems. Also, the rabbis had defined uh, work as moving something from one domain to another. So, for example, you're not supposed to take something from inside your house outside to the street. That's transferring it from one domain to another. So, uh, when Jesus tells the man, pick up your cot and take it with you, then uh, he's clearly take, taking something from the area of the pool of Bethzatha and moving it somewhere else. And that also is what rabbis have said. You can't do that. It's forbidden. And here's the genius in the way John tells this. We have seen all of this and we're amazed. What a miracle. I mean, consider that. If you've been paralyzed for 38 years, that means those are muscles that you have not used in 38 years. It takes a month for your muscles to start to atrophy. Even if you could reconnect somebody's spinal column, it would take years of rehabilitation before you could think of walking. And yet, instantly... Not only is his paralysis removed, but he is able to walk. What an astounding act of God. And the kindness of it. There was nothing about this guy that would commend him to Jesus. He didn't plead with him, beg with him. He didn't call out to him as Messiah, as some did. He showed no faith at all. And yet, out of the goodness out of the kindness of God, this man is restored physically. We read, that, we read that story and we marvel. And all of a sudden, we're given this little bomb at the end of it. Oh, by the way, this happened on Sabbath. And any self-respecting Jew would immediately do the mental math and go back and say, wait a minute. How can this be a wondrous act of God if we're breaking God's Sabbath? How can it be a good thing of God if you're not supposed to do uh, healing or life uh, 
any kind of medical procedure unless the person's life is in danger. And this guy's life is clearly not in danger. He should have waited till Sunday to do this. And he should never have told him to pick up his cot and take it with him. Never mind that that might be the only possession he had. It's Sabbath. God doesn't care. You leave it put. And we're forced to face the incongruence of what we understand in our gut is the goodness of God and what we've been told by the religious experts God demands. And suddenly we're asking questions like, well, is it possible that God wants us on Sabbath to not enjoy a a gracious act of healing? Is Sabbath, we honor God on Sabbath by not doing something good? Could it be that Sabbath negates goodness? Is that what God intended? And John tells the story this way to force us to come face to face with that contradiction. In fact, the, the Jews, and in John's gospel, he, uh, I, I've said this before, I think, uh, I believe John writes probably late in the first century, maybe in the early 90s. Uh, so if that's the case, it's been 20 years since the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple completely, and uh, put an end to Jewish life in Jerusalem the way it had happened up until then. So that means it's been about 20 years since we've had things like Sadducees or Pharisees or Herodians or Zealots or Essenes. These groups are all gone. All you've got left now are just Jews. So when John writes, he doesn't bother as all the other gospel writers do because I believe they do write their gospels before the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, When John writes, he doesn't bother to identify which particular group the people talking or belong to. He just uses this generic, the Jews. Some people have said that this means that John was kind of an anti-Semite, that he kind of labels all Jews as enemies of Christ. And I don't think that's at all what he's doing. But he does simply refer to the religious leadership, regardless of what flavor they might have been. They all agreed on one thing. They didn't want Jesus. So in John, his shorthand for the religious leadership of the day is just to say the Jews. So these religious leaders, and I would suspect they probably had something to do with the Pharisees who were most intent on the Pharisaic, the rabbinic traditions. Uh, They approach the man and and, uh, talk to the man who has been healed. And John is reminding us of what's just happened. They have nothing to say about him being healed. There's only one thing they're worried about. It is Sabbath. You are not allowed to take up your cot. It's forbidden. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. But he answered them, The one who made me well, that one said to me, Take up your cot and walk. This kind of reads to me like Genesis, the opening chapters, when God tells Adam, You can do anything, you can have any fruit, just one tree. One tree, you cannot eat the fruit from that tree. And, of course, Adam and Eve both do the exact thing thing that God told them not to do. And when God confronts Adam about it, why did you eat from the tree you were not supposed to eat? His answer is, well, God, the wife you gave me, so there are two people to blame, not me, 
gave to me and I ate. And God turns to Eve, okay, Eve, why did you eat? And she said, well, this serpent deceived me. That's kind of what this guy does. They say, what are you doing? You know you're not allowed to do this. He says, well, it wasn't my fault. The guy who made me well, and notice how quickly we move past the astounding miracle and start quibbling over stupid stuff. The one who made me well, that's the guy that said to me, take up your cot and walk. He told me to do it. I'm just, I just, I was, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but he's the guy that told me to do it. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who told you, take up and walk? Notice when they review, they don't even mention the fact that he made you well. They just say, who's the guy that said, take up and walk? That's all they care about. God has done a miracle the likes of which many Jews had died longing to see and never in their whole lives experienced a mighty act of God like this. And yet they brush it aside because all they're concerned about is are you keeping the rules the way we've told you to do it? Verse 13, but the one who had been healed did not know who it had been. For Jesus left unnoticed by the crowd that was in the place. So here's what happened. Jesus healed him very simply. Take up your cot and walk. And in the astounding moment of finding that he can actually stand, by the time he's turned around, Jesus is gone. There's a crowd of people there. Jesus just kind of disappears into the crowd. Nobody knows All of a sudden, this guy's standing up, and I'm sure eventually people start to notice there's something odd about that. Uh, But by then, Jesus is gone. He never introduced himself, so the guy doesn't know who did it. I have a question from these verses. God healed a paralytic of 38 years, and the religious objected that this violated religious regulations. Have you ever experienced conflict between what is good and what is required by religious regulations. Let's keep reading, verse 14. After these things, Jesus finds him in the temple, and he said to him, Look, you have become well. Do not sin any longer, lest something worse happen to you. One of the reasons the ill in antiquity were uh, not terribly favored was this assumption that if something was wrong with you, it's because God was not happy with you. And if you had some horrible misfortune fall on you, surely you had done something horrendous to offend God that brought that curse upon you because if you do good, God blesses. Some people try to preach the Christian gospel that way, that having a lot of money and no problems is the guarantee that God is happy with you. And that having financial difficulties or health problems is a sign either of lack of faith or God's disfavor upon you. That was kind of the assumption. Now Jesus, uh, in this verse, seems to go along with that idea because he seems to indicate that there was some connection between this man's sin and his paralysis. But I would point out that if we read the whole Gospel of John, in chapter 9, Jesus is presented with the question I'm discussing right now. He doesn't get into it in this case. 
But in chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and the disciples want to know, who offended God? Was it his parents before he was born, or did he somehow get God mad with him before he was even born, and that's why he was born blind? And Jesus said, in that case, neither his parents nor he sinned. This blindness has nothing to do with somebody offending God. So, we have to be, uh, understand that Jesus is not saying that every illness is a sign of God's anger or his displeasure. But, it does seem that in this man's case, his condition had something to do with sin. He had uh, done something he knew he was not supposed to do, and as a consequence, suffered paralysis. I can imagine any number of ways that could happen. You might be trying to assault and rob somebody and it goes terribly wrong. You might be trying to climb in someplace to steal something and fall and break your back. There are a whole lot of ways you can be doing something you know you're not supposed to be doing and the result of it be this catastrophic uh, outcome. Well, Jesus says, you've been made well physically, but uh, I haven't fixed the real problem. I've given you a chance. But there's a real issue here. You know, this was just an external indicator of your internal problem. You had turned away from God and you were doing it your way and the result of that choice of life, that path in life, is dev devastation and destruction. And you got a really good taste of that in your life. I have restored you physically but you need to do more than that. You need to change course. You can't keep going that way. He says, don't sin anymore. Don't keep sinning lest something worse happens to you. And as this chapter goes on, Jesus will get into a discussion about what the Father has enabled him and entrusted him to do. And the thing he points out in the coming verses is that he has granted me the authority to judge and there will be a final reckoning. And the dead will be raised to face judgment to life or judgment or condemnation. So when he says something worse might happen to you, he's talking in the broader scope of our eternal existence. And there is something even worse than 38 years of paralysis. There's an eternity of condemnation. There's the utter ruin and devastation of sin playing out fully in our lives. A couple of things stand out to me. He finds him in the temple. You see, now this guy can get all the way up the steps because in the temple, every, every outer area, you ascended steps to reach the next area. You had the court of Gentiles, that was the furthest out. Then you would go up some steps, you'd be in the court of women where any Jewish woman or man could enter. Then you would rise, go up some steps again, and you would be in the court of Israel where only Jewish males were allowed. And then from there, you, you would have to be a priest to go to any of the next levels. So he's restored, because of what Jesus has done, he's restored to be able to draw near to the temple in a way he couldn't before. And that is where he finds him. And he gives him this offer of a second chance. I have given you a reset here. Don't waste it. I have a question from this verse. Jesus gave the paralytic a second chance. 
an offer to be free of sin's power and its destructive outcomes. How have you allowed Jesus to free you from this in your life? Let's keep reading verse 15 and 16. The man left and reported to the Jews that Jesus is the one who had made him well. And because of this, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Sadly, this man does not seem to take Jesus' correction to heart. You know what he does immediately? He goes and finds the guys who were telling him what Jesus told you to do, he should not have told you to do. What Jesus did for you, he should not have done. Those are the guys he goes to find. If it were up to them, he would still be a paralytic. And yet, those are the guys he runs to, and he rats Jesus out. You guys wanted to know who the guy is that's doing the stuff you don't want him doing? This is, his name is Jesus. That's the guy you want. We never hear about this guy again. That's the last thing we hear about him doing, is informing on Jesus. With the result that these same Jews are now persecuting Jesus because he is doing these things on the Sabbath. And it's clear that this was not the only miraculous thing God did on a, uh, Jesus did on a Sabbath. In fact, he kind of went out of his way to do these things on Sabbath because he had a point to make about the rabbi, rabbis and their teaching. He went out of his way to step all over their traditions because they were misrepresenting God and his word to the people of Israel. But because of this, because Jesus is performing miracles that only God can do on Sabbath, they have decided we have to oppose him. Because the alternative is to admit we're doing it wrong. The alternative is to tell the people you've been teaching their whole lives long, guess what? You know all that I told you about Sabbath? Turns out I got it wrong. That wasn't what God meant. I misrepresented God's word to you. And rather than repent of that sin and turn from it, they dug in their heels and said, we're going to oppose Jesus every step of the way. I have a question from these verses. Why do you think that even in the face of God's powerful and good activity, people often insist on opposing him? Let's finish with verses 17 and 18. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So, because of this, the Jews were seeking even more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus doesn't back down to people who criticize him for healing on the Sabbath and for instructing the man to carry his cot home with him. He says, guess what? My father, and I've told you this 
Father, I think, is the most often repeated theologically significant word in the Gospel of John. It occurs, I forget the exact number, but it occurs over a hundred times, and almost every single one of them is being used to refer to God as Father. John wants us to understand that God's disposition towards us is that of a kind and loving father, not a despot, not a tyrant, not just the guy that runs the universe, but father. Jesus over and over refers to God as father. My father is working until now. Here's what Jesus is pointing out. God doesn't stop working on Sabbath. And the rabbis admitted this. They understood that because people continue to die and be born on Sabbath, and because God alone controls life and death, that seemed to them irrefutable proof that God is doing things on Sabbath. Some were clever. They found a way around it. Uh, They said, well, if if what we're trying to say you can't do is... transfer something from one domain to another and if God is omnipresent and is in every corner of creation simultaneously then there is for God only one domain so anything he does doesn't really count as work Uh, that isn't really what Jesus says Jesus says yeah the father is working the rest we're talking about on Sabbath is not inactivity The Father is continuing to do good on Sabbath. And if the Father is doing good on Sabbath, guess what? I'm going to heal a paralytic on Sabbath. And I'm going to tell him, don't leave your cot behind. Take it with you. And I don't care what you guys think about that. Because you guys are wrong. That is not what the Father meant when he gave you Sabbath as a gift. It was never meant to forbid the doing of good. God never intended for you to pit doing good against keeping Sabbath. So many times we take God's instructions and try to face them off against each other and cause one to negate the other. It's sneaky because that way we get to not keep one of God's commandments. But that's never the way Jesus did it. You keep them all. And you find the way to honor all of God's instructions, not pit them against each other. My father's working until now, so I'm working. How do these Jewish leaders respond? Well, now they don't even just want to oppose him. They don't want to just persecute him. They want to kill him now. They realize how dangerous Jesus is. This is God Almighty walking among them, doing the things that only God can do. They have nothing that can compete with Jesus. They cannot perform the miracles he's performing. They cannot teach with the authority with which he teaches. Their mastery of God's law is always exposed as deficient when they get into arguments with Jesus because he knows his word better than anybody. The solution, let's kill him. Let's be done with him altogether. Because they realize when he says, if my father's working, I am too, he is claiming the same prerogatives that the father has. 
He is making himself equal to God. And it's more than just imitation he's talking about here. As the discussion continues, this is how Jesus will say it. I am doing the works of the Father. I'm not just imitating the Father. I am doing his works. What you see me doing is nothing short of the hand of God at work among you. They understand that's what Jesus is saying, and they want to kill him. They don't want God at work among them. I have a final question. Jesus is God come among us. God drawing near to us in the most intimate way possible, participating in our very existence. Why is it important that God took on flesh in his ultimate act of communication to us? So there we have it. God has drawn near to us. We may have been mired in the hopelessness of our life as sin begins to tear apart every aspect of our life that we loved. And even in our hopelessness, even in our despair, Jesus steps in and asks us the simple question, do you want to be well? And it's more than a physical question. Do you want to be freed from the power that is destroying your life? If we will turn to him in faith, if we will renounce the sin that is killing us and cling to him and say, Jesus, give us the life you came to give us. If we surrender to him as God, as Lord, as Savior, he will do the Father's glorious work in us. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us, for giving us life. And Lord, even when we've squandered the gifts you've given us and we have made a mess of everything, and even when we hit rock bottom and realize the devastation that sin has carried out in our lives, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own, that you don't just sit there in heaven and say, well, you brought it on yourself. You made your bed, sleep in it. But that you step in and say, do you want to be well? Jesus, help us to cling to you, to be drawn out of the power of sin and death and into your life everlasting. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.